back. Season 1, Episode 8, Season Finale of the first year of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Oh, yeah. This is exciting because when we were shooting it, of course, still no idea what the world would think of this show. In fact, the concern was maybe just Jews who live in the Upper West Side, as Tony Shalhoub famously said. Maybe they'll like us. Beyond that, I don't know. And then by the time this episode drops, well, first season was dropped in mass as a total. So binging, there's no telling how many days, weeks it took for people to watch and get to episode eight of season one. But my oh my, I can guarantee you when they did, it had broken through the noise at that time, 2017, 18, over 600 scripted shows on all the portals to break through that noise. Yeah. Now it's well approaching 800, but then easily 600 scripted shows. Yeah. To break through the conversations about all the shows that you love, to have folks suddenly talking about it was beyond exciting. So my guest and I, Cynthia Darlow, who of course plays Mrs. Moskowitz, uh, just lovely, extraordinary person away from the cameras and the set and the crew and everybody, just sweet, full of heart. It comes through in our conversation here, and I think you're going to love her as much as I do. I know you are. Yeah, let's welcome in for Season 1, Episode 8, a conversation of a Mrs. Maisel Pod. I threatened. <laughs> here is Cynthia Darlow. Now, am I saying your name correctly? Yes. Okay, because my last name, of course, has been mispronounced more times than not. So uh -huh. I wanted to get that <laughs> it, out of the yeah, way. It, it, as simple as my name is, it often gets mispronounced too, or spelled with an E, or, you know, yeah. you just. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of the things about working and getting to know people like yourself is after a while, it's too late to ask. You know that feeling? <laughs> yes. It, it looks bad if at this point you're finally asking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wait till it's live being recorded for all posterity for me to call myself out as a person <laughs> who had driven past the opportunity to ask. I figured I had Cynthia, right? Because that's what I call you and I see you, but. You know. <laughs> and I've answered to it a number of times. Yes, you really have. Most times. <laughs> I'm going to say just about every time. So, Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me today. Are you in your home in the New York City area? I am my home in the New York City area. Okay, lovely. I'm in a friend's home in the New York City area. Ah, yep. it looks much more spacious than mine. Well, <laughs> you know what? It's not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it is a pool of envy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's all, it's actually green screen. I'm in a very tiny room. <laughs> uh, I have uh, a friend who he and his uh, lady gal friend of, geez, almost 40 years. They live in London. So I get to, as the Jews say, schnorr in their New York apartment quite Fantastic. a bit. Quite a That's bit because they're very, very generous people and famous. So I'm not going to name them. <laughs> um, okay, so let's start really by, uh, as, as is my want, your introduction to this world of Mrs. Maisel. What, what is the, your origin story with this shoe? Well, like uh, most jobs for uh, journeyman actors, uh, I got a call from my agent. Uh, there's this audition. I went in. Uh, I had one little scene to read. Uh, the only people in the room were Amy and Dan. Uh -huh. And the casting representative. 
And um, they said, okay, nice to meet you. Go ahead and read. I read. They laughed. Always a good sign. Yeah. Then uh, Dan gave me a little direction. He said, uh, and Amy said, you know, we like to work fast. You able to work fast? I said, oh, my God. I said, people are always telling me to slow down. And they laughed, you know. And so uh, then Dan said, um, okay, read the scene again. And this time as Joel leaves, kind of stay with him. Stay, keep your focus on him. So I came up with something and they just about fell off their chairs. And um, the next morning I got a call from my agent that I'd gotten the job. So it was just one audition. No callback needed. One audition. No callback. Yeah. One and done. Yeah. That's we great. love when that happens. <laughs> oh, so rare. Yeah. yeah. And so many of the people I've spoken to really were put through the ringer. Oh, I just talked to an actor yesterday who has been in No Lie 17 times and they haven't cast him yet. I said, well, honey, they're clearly trying to. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, this friend must know that. If they're if they're not saying anything promising, you're you're not coming back. That's right. <laughs> uh, as as frustrating and annoying and perhaps a crime against humanity as seventeen auditions. <laughs> yeah, I said they're really they're trying. You're so special. They're trying to save you for something good, but they clearly want to cast you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice of you to stay friendly with Nathan Lane all these years. So, <laughs> well, that's great. And then you started in the first episode. Yeah, the first episode. And I, I don't know if this is true. I've never actually asked it to get corroboration. But someone told me that the characters of Joel and Mrs. Moskowitz were originally only meant to be in the first season. Those characters were going to go away. And thank God that's not what happened, because here we are five seasons later still together, Joel and me. <laughs> so Michael Zegan's character, Joel, is that what you mean? Yes, or Joel yes. Johnstone, the I'm, actor I'm, that no, plays I mean, Archie. Michael Zegan's Joel, yeah. Yeah, well, I can say from my conversations, you were wildly misinformed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just for Mike Zegan's part. You know, the truth of the matter is, and Amy and Dan have talked about this, and I'll have them on it, and this will be one of the things I pummel them with, was that it was almost like a Desi and... Um, Lucy? Yeah, and Lucy. In terms of phenomenal together and then couldn't stay together but loved each other to the end and produced together and you know the idea that there could be this you mean midge and joel in this case midge and joel uh -huh. would be likened to those two yes so and i love how quickly mrs moskowitz comes into the scene and the whole penny pan of it all <laughs> that was a wonderful scene. I loved yeah, it. <laughs> but I do love that. Listen, a lot of characters were all we're going to commit to is one. Right. And when I talked to Luke Kirby, he felt the same way about Lenny. He, you know, the, the idea uh -huh. that he probably would return was talked about. But uh -huh. and certainly in the case of a lot of the characters, I remember just that general sense of Mrs. Moskowitz as, oh, I hope they keep her as a fan watching the show because oh, there was a sweet. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was an instant chemistry and dynamic and that's what you're looking for. And it's not easy to come by. And so your experience working on the first episode was what in terms of just doing the pilot? Oh, it was incredibly positive. I had such a great time. And um, I really didn't know that it was going to turn into uh, this long-term recurring role. I had no idea. I was just grateful for whatever, you know, <laughs> at a ball. I loved the writing. I mean, it just, it was a knockout and such 
a pleasure to play. Yeah. And Michael Zegan, oh my gosh, what a doll. It was just good. He's, uh, I have to say, uh, he always gives me his eyes. He's just, he's just wonderful. He gives me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, I love him a lot too. Like I said, your guys' chemistry is pretty, pretty crazy great. <laughs> and so what about the first time after the first episode when you, well, first staying in the first episode there, your experience working with, I guess, Amy directed that. Yes. With her as a director, because I've claimed many times the only direction I've ever received from her was to pace it up. Yeah. <laughs> She's never talked to me about character or tone. I mean, tone's a big one on this show. Yeah. It's just been pace it up. What is your experience? Yeah, that, that's pretty typical. Yeah. I mean, um, my favorite thing is that every time I get a scene that Amy or yeah, well, every time I get a scene, Amy comes up, Amy personally comes up with some extra nugget of comic gold. Yeah. For me. It's just, it's just uncanny. And I think I know what I'm doing with comedy. But man, she's always got an extra idea. And I go, well, of course, you know, <laughs> she's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. They're both kind of savant in their ability yeah. to create a world and then top it. <laughs> top it. Yeah, it is true. They they continue to expand it. And it's kind of remarkable. Yeah. Delicious. And then that first time being asked back to the table, what episode mm. was that? Was that the very next episode? Uh, I don't think it was the next one, but uh, it was later in the season. But yeah, there, were, there was more. <laughs> yeah. And also having worked on the pilot, I remember Tony said, he had told me when they worked on the pilot that he said, well, you know, because we're always asked, did you know it was a hit? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Tony said, we, we really thought that the Jews who lived on the Upper West Side would probably like it. <laughs> he wasn't even going to commit to that <laughs> winning great. them over. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you did the pilot, was there, because I wasn't on the pilot, was there a viewing gathering? Was there any sense of even when it was going to air? Because, you know, back no, then. No, I actually, I was not in the pilot. I was in the first episode after the pilot. Oh, That's sorry. when my character got introduced. My mistake. My mistake. So, yeah, me too. Episode two. Yeah. Uh, the pilot would act as the first episode. So, sorry. I, there's no way for me to keep it all in my head. I don't know how I knew that. <laughs> me neither. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't tell you how many episodes I've done or what was in which season. I have no yeah. idea. And I'm re-watching them now. And, and I'm yeah. only, here we are at the season finale of season one. And I've already forgotten who and what happened <laughs> in episode Well, it, it, all these episodes are jam-packed and fun-filled. I mean, a lot happens. Yeah, yeah. So... Your experience was more like mine in that when you joined the show, it had already been picked up from pilot to two seasons. Correct. In a historical announcement, certainly from Amazon. And it only had happened a few times in the history of television where a show was wow. picked up from pilot to two seasons. So had you seen the pilot before auditioning? No. Because it had existed on Amazon for a while. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, well, apparently you didn't need to have your hammers in two days or less. So you weren't a part of the Amazon Prime family. But yeah, so they, I don't know if they still do this as a practice, but they would put their pilots up on Amazon Prime and let people watch them and, and weigh in. Wow. Yeah, instead of the old-fashioned broadcast network way of doing test screenings and Oh, so many, so many tests, <laughs> so many tests, you know, so many polls. <laughs> yeah. And just bringing people in off the street 
offering <laughs> free air conditioning and some soup. And now tell us what you think of this show. And then those seven people get to decide the fate. Just yeah, ridiculous. Right. So I always thought it was great that Amazon did that, where they just threw it up on the site and just mm -hmm. read all their comments from the actual audience. So did you do a number of uh, I guess you did a number of episodes that first season, right? Yeah, I think there were three or four. I don't really remember. I won't I pin you down. We've it made it clear okay. that you and I remember very little. Um, <laughs> but just that it was more than one, because obviously yeah. you're here in the season finale that we're going to discuss. Yeah. So that's at least two. But I do remember there were more. <laughs> and eventually our characters get to play together, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. Yes, we had a couple of scenes at the uh, at the garment factory. Once it was on the soundstage in season two, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. So your impressions overall from rewatching the season finale? I'm going to assume you didn't rewatch the entire first season. I hadn't asked you to. <laughs> so if you want to just weigh in, okay. So overview just a big overview take on the season finale as a whole yeah there were, i was uh, the, the first impression i had was wow so much happened in this episode it was yeah. just extraordinary oh man so many dynamics gosh there was um midge at the department store ethan's birthday party joel staying overnight with midge oh my god they were so hopeful and escaping through the fire escape it was wonderful yeah it was just uh, yeah so many things occurred and joel quitting his job oh i'll tell you when okay I'll be honest, when that scene came up, I thought my job was done. Joel was quitting the plastics well, yeah. factory. Yeah. I didn't think I had a prayer of going with him. It wasn't even an idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you must have thought. Yeah. My heart sank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember those conversations with Mike Zegan because my role in the show was reoccurring in the first season before I was fortunate to become a series regular in season two. But season one, I was reoccurring. So I was fully invested in Mike Zegan's future on the show as his father <laughs> and would constantly sort of, so they're writing for you pretty good, huh? And he kept assuring me, yeah, I'm going to do the series, man. Okay. Don't, 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 don't fret <laughs> whether my character is going to be around or not. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever worked on a show where your character was killed? Because I have, and it happened right before this one. Yeah. On mom. On mom. Yeah. 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 Spoiler yeah. alert. So I, when Amy and Dan asked me to do the series, Maisel, I just, I had one request. I just said, you can't kill me. That's all I ask. <laughs> also, let's not kill people in a comedy. I don't, yeah. I don't think that should happen. <laughs> But more importantly, I can't now because I just hadn't done a lot of television. And so after doing, I think it was 14 episodes of Mom and getting that call from the show Overlord, he who won't be named because he's just the worst in my experience of 40 years in the business. Here's how bad he is. He calls me a week before Christmas to let me know my character was not only leaving the show, but being killed. And he was so disconnected from reality that he pitched me the death as a isn't this funny oh my god yeah week before christmas <laughs> oh man yeah but you're gonna oh, go out in a cold. funny way and then told me how wow it was gonna happen which in fact was meant to be funny but uh-huh you don't pitch that joke to the person you're killing yeah yeah wow no i can't remember getting killed off anywhere but i kept expecting to get killed off on Maisel. Well, you know, just for the conflict of it, you're not yeah. wrong. We, we've all been doing, well, I guess we, I don't know that a wish, a death list ever circulated on <laughs> among the cast. Oh. Crew. But so far, knock wood, 
So looking at that final episode, you know, they really are building up so many storylines. And, yeah. and one of them, as you mentioned, was what looks to be the reuniting of Midge and Joel, husband and wife. Yeah. Even starting with Ethan's birthday at the carousel is the first time that the Midge character says, I think we need to start talking about making the divorce official. Right. But, you know, that's how they broach the subject before in the same episode, you slowly and organically and believably see them rekindle. And, you know, at that point as a viewing experience, it seems most people, because initially the character of Joel is used as a conflict and a character for the audience to hate, mm -hmm. even though he's essential in Midge finding her path in life, the way that great conflict and drama usually provides <laughs> a projection of a central character. But, you know, Michael Zegan had a tough time with the idea that a lot of the audience who love Midge yes, hate, hated, hated him. him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He never bought into that theory. Yeah. He had a hard time with that. I felt so sorry for him. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I, I was I, I played a villain before and I, I don't get to play the villain very often because look at this sweet face. But um, you, I played a villain one time and it was uh, a musical. And when I had my big evil number, the audience actually hissed as I yeah. left the stage and booed yeah. me. Yeah. I thought, well, that is just the best. <laughs> Tough to beat. It's tough to be, but it was like the the right thing that should have happened. But yeah. it was tough on the actor's ego. It was completely right reaction for the character. But the yeah. actor had a little bit of a tough time. Yeah, yeah. A long history, of course, in theater and going back to vaudeville and, and further back, I'm sure Shakespearean actors that the villain would be hissed and uh, they, that actor would become one of the more popular in the troupe and paid more quite, <laughs> often, quite often throughout history. So, yeah, Joel, the character really had to be loathed initially because he broke her heart. And, yeah. you know, that's unforgivable. Yeah. And so by the time we get to the season finale, we welcome them back together. And I think we root for them. And especially because Midge is happy about the idea after initially a few episodes before when he attempted to rekindle and she said no. And he said, what? Yeah. You know, so surprised. And she said, because you left. It was just so beautiful. Yeah, so beautiful. And then for her to welcome him back in this way and mm -hmm. even maybe be the one to make the first move in the kitchen there late at night, which I thought was so brilliant of Amy and Dan. Yeah, you just give me chills just talking about it. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. So real. They had maintained a closeness through it all when she wasn't further giving him, and rightfully so, uh, a lot of grief for the choices he had made. And especially, I think the episode before when she goes to his apartment and sees Penny Pan within this yeah. domestic attempt at bliss. And one yeah. of the things, of course, great in the season finale is when Penny Pan comes <laughs> to the department store. To, to the department store and just <laughs> attempts to reason with Midge to get out of yeah. Joel's life and yeah. leave, him, leave him to her. I mean, it was so foolish, but again, really well executed. Driven by passion and from the heart. So you buy it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. I thought that the scene with you and the fellas gearing up for the big pitch in Joel's yeah. office yeah. looked especially fun. You know, you're chiming in. Yeah. Mrs. Moskowitz is chiming in with honesty and directness and also support and pep, you know. That's pretty great. 
Well, I love the relationship that she feels free to to criticize Denny's gray suit that makes him look tubby. You know, I yeah. think she, you know, she feels free to, you know, whip these boys into shape. You know, mm-hmm. she's kind of, you know, the camp counselor in a way with these wild guys. Mother and uh, Joel. Joel and yes, mother hen, but Joel includes her in cocktails after work. You know, it's just it's just the best. Yeah, really great dynamic. And it and I love also that I haven't met Midge yet in person. I've only right. heard about Midge. Right. Until until <laughs> I think the first time I have contact with Midge, she's on a, a phone call in a phone booth. She's got Ethan on the in the, the old phone booth in the park, and she's uh, trying to find Joel's new number, which has been disconnected. His old number's been disconnected, and she calls Mrs. Moskowitz for his address. And oh. he's moved to the, you know, That's the first time we have a conversation. She says, "Well, wait a minute. This address is what here." And she says, "Where is this?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I'm from Queens. I I don't <laughs> know." <Right. laughs> I just that was my first contact with her. Oh wow, love that. Of course, yeah. Let's see what other scenes. I I do like that we finally meet Eddie, the owner of the gaslight. Yeah, yeah. When he tells Susie, of course, that they're persona non grata because Harry Drake is putting the squeeze on. And Amanda Gleason, that horrible name that (laughs) they settle on for Midge. Until uh, a few scenes later, Lenny Bruce helps her see the light of that ridiculous Right. But yeah, the scene before Penny Pan confronts Midge at B. Altman is at the gaslight where Rick Stoneback, the actor playing Eddie, mm-hmm. reading Jamie's notes. She does such a good job as reference here. I mostly mention that over and over in these episodes so that listeners know, so that it doesn't appear as if I can remember things. I don't <laughs> want to mislead you. I have a reference in front of me that Jamie was kind enough to create. Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's right. Thank you, Jamie. So the character of Eddie, it's so strange after all this time and in the season one finale Mm. that we meet the owner of the gaslight who just lowers the hammer and leaves. I hope I don't have to come back here. Like he wants nothing to do with this place. (laughs) He just wants to pick up the money and the deposit slips. (laughs) Yeah. We're left wondering what. What is this guy's story? And, um, you know, since we're only at season one here for listeners, you may or may not hear more from Eddie. If you're a fan of the show and you're just listening to this now, you know the answer to that. Anyways, through the first four seasons, let's see some other highlights for me. And please weigh in if something comes back to you. There's another scene that you're in at Joel's office when they have the big pitch that you guys Uh had prepared for. And I just love how they had written Joel in that prep scene with you guys. He is just so peppy and happy and confident. And after stopping by that record store with Archie and accidentally (laughs) hearing Midge's first set. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Or is it just on a tape? I think maybe it's just on a tape. It's a tape. It's real to real tape. Yeah. Right. Right. And from those two record nerds from down the basement, they're finally in the main floor upstairs and they've got a patron with them. And when it's not really clear as to why they're playing it for this person, but they're just giddy with excitement over this new female comedic voice, which Joel and Archie have run downstairs to check out the downstairs. And they slowly come back up when, as Midge's voice tells the story of her broken marriage from that first drunken performance and uh, suitably or organically justifiably uh, the character of joel loses his shit <laughs> needless to say 
And then right after that is when we see him in what we thought was going to be a slam dunk, easy peasy pitch where he's getting this new expansion within the company. Mm -hmm. He had previously told Abe Weissman, I've got the family covered. I'm getting a new position or new salary. So confident. And then for the first time ever, we see a shell of a man because as an audience, we know so little really of what happens at that company mm-hmm. right, until right. this episode, right? Where I yeah. feel like he's pitching this broader world of what to do with the plastics, I guess, that they make. Yes, yes. Or that they distribute because um, he's making a pitch to them earlier. Let's make the plastics. Let's right. form them ourselves. Let's, yeah. In a real take charge uh, demeanor. So to see him almost ghost-like in that pitch meeting, just going so horribly that what happens? He quits. It's Halfway through a pitch stunning. meeting. Just <laughs> stunning. Just yeah. stunning. Didn't see it coming. Nope. I love that they're playing him distraught in the pitch meeting. And we assume he's going to blow it. But oh, no. The stakes are always higher than you think. Yeah. And he just says, yeah, I quit. And, and it's just, yeah, Oof. so bizarre. And so your sense was when you read that script, well, that's it for Mrs. Moskowitz. We won't see her again. Yeah. I thought that was the end of me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, it was the end of season one. So even though the show, as I mentioned, had been picked up to two seasons from pilot, the show was going to make a second season. Right. But those of us who were recurring in the first season didn't really know if we were going to, you know, come back. Correct. And if so, in what capacity? I wonder if I should share a little story of my return to season two and how I became a series regular. It's probably good for young actors to hear this. Absolutely. Or old actors also to hear this. <laughs> well, you may have heard the old adage in show business, there's no more powerful word than no. But it's especially powerful if you actually have a reason to mean it. And I remember when my agent and lawyer, I don't know what your experience is when a real job possibility becomes a little more real and all the representatives get on the phone together. So in my case, after 30 years ago, a few good men came out. 30th anniversary. Can you believe that? Wow. I was 17. <laughs> so for the past 30 years, I've been fortunate enough because of a few good men's success to get offers instead of having to audition, which is the lap of luxury for any actor. And I've never yes. taken it for granted ever. But consequently, when an offer becomes real and it's time to shit or get off the pot, as they say, <laughs> I'll get a phone call and the assistant will say, hold for, and then runs down the list of agents and lawyers. And I realize in that moment, oh, geez, this is, I have to make, everyone has to make a decision on this call. And so they said, they want you to come back for season two, but they can't commit to series regular. We tried to get them to, you have to be reoccurring again. And I said, well, I'm going to direct this script I've written as a film, which at that point, I think was the fourth time it had been financed, previous three fully financed and then fallen apart. And I fully expected the fourth one to fall apart just because I was used to it. And, and, <laughs> and I wasn't wrong because it ultimately did. But at this point, it was still financed 
no casting yet. And it was known to be cast contingent, like all films are. Uh-huh. That is for the home audience, cast contingent. It, it, it won't actually go into production unless you get the right key elements in casting that can justify the budget. But I had enough for me to say to my all the king's horses and all the king's men on this phone call, I can't go back as reoccurring because I, I can't let them not commit to what my schedule is going to be. Now, if I had looked into the crystal ball and looked ahead, I would realize that even that wasn't a valid point because as a regular on the show, I still don't know what my schedule is going to be. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Other than <laughs> other than Rachel and I think Alex, maybe Tony, not all of us know if we're going to be in every episode. Right. But damn it, I was going to force them to pay me at least to be in every episode whether they use me or not but anyways i was going to direct this movie of mine which i'm still allegedly directing when we finished this <laughs> for the fifth sixth time i don't know how many times it's been fallen uh, has fallen apart and it was enough of a genuine no for my reps to hear on the phone oh okay because i was able to say to them i'm I'm going to say no. I'm going to have to pass it being reoccurring on the show. As much as I would kill to be a part of it, I, I just can't do it in this capacity. And Amy, you know, I just thought it's in their hands, right? Yeah. And it took maybe three or four days. And I got an email from one of the reps saying, congratulations, you're a series regular on the show. Oh, baby. Sweet. And I I text Amy Sherman Palladino and said, I hear I'm going to see you, whatever it was, January, I think we would reassemble. Uh-huh. I guess I, I hear I'm going to see you in January after all. And she just texts back the following. What can I say? I get what I want. Ah. <laughs> and it was it was her way of kindly saying. You you played hardball good for you um but don't think you're going anywhere because <laughs> we know how much you really want to be on the show yeah yeah so we're not taking this pass uh seriously but it was one of those few rare moments where yeah i said no and actually meant it you it's it's really true yeah you have if you're going to say no you do have to be willing to walk away that's the hard part you really do have to be willing to walk away and you're, you're right the power of no is staggering it's uh it's really something i haven't had to employ it too many times but uh, it was it was good when i did it it's the hardest thing in the world if it mm. isn't genuine if you really do want the, the job but you don't but you also want to be taken correct more seriously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're or whatever not just, the ask is or whatever the ask is. It's, right. It's got not, to be met. You're not just saying no because you're being. No, I think very few of us do that. <laughs> yeah. We say no for a reason. Yeah. Always. Yeah. It's the toughest thing for me. I'm fairly spineless. Mm. You know, also, I think maybe because I came from stand-up comedy and stand-up comedy, if there's stage time, the answer is yes. It's never discussed uh-huh. or negotiated. Yeah. It is now. But certainly initially, it was always yes, yes, yes. What is your experience like in terms of that, in terms of that? the Listen, I think it's probably universal that we all just want to work. 
And we oh, want to yeah, do so good work. It's just, it's just awful. We really would do it for free. I mean, we just yeah. love what we do. And, and this past two years of no work has just been devastating for us all. I mean, I've never been so depressed in my life. And, I, and I've and i managed to have a little work through all this. And it's, yeah, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, it. We love it so much. It's just I, I'm I'm pretty spineless when it comes to negotiation because if yeah. it's a role that speaks to me, I'll yeah, I'll just I'll lick boots to be near the theater, you know? Sure. Yeah. No, and my response is usually well, so much so that um when I started getting offers for things, it was an instant yes without really taking a moment to pause and say is this the thing I should be doing next? You know, unless the agent weighed in and said, as they do now, I'll get an email saying, we've been offered this thing. I assume it's a pass, but I, you know, wanted to bring it to your attention. Yeah. And that's their subtle way of saying, we don't think you should do this. But there was no one in, <laughs> nobody in the 90s, as Jamie will tell you, I was very big in the 90s, which just means I did, I, I said yes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I tell young actors all the time, say yes to everything when you're starting out, because that's what I did too. I said yes to everything. Yeah. But here's the caveat I will offer though. Sure. Make please. sure you read the project or go to see the project if it's already up and running before you say yes. <laughs> because I once said yes to a project. Yeah. Because of the people who were involved that I loved and I'd worked for before and loved their work. But this was a new project and I hadn't read it. And I just said yes and then found out that there was this topless monologue that I was going to have to do. <laughs> <laughs> well then yeah yeah and uh and the, the worst part about that would have been fine but i felt that the topless part of it was gratuitous that it had nothing to do with the monologue that was being spoken while this topless thing was going on and um what ended up happening is i did accept the job and because they agreed that it didn't have to be done topless mm. but i mean i just blindly said yes and then found out so read the project first. <laughs> yeah, but you got them to do the right thing. I did. Anyways, well, good for you. That speaks volumes to how much they wanted you for the part. Oh, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, I thought I would lose it, but I had to. I had to speak up. Well, there's a great lesson though. Do speak up while you're yeah. saying yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and not even stand your ground because you think your point of view is correct, but rather what you feel in your heart. Mm -hmm which is a horrible idea of a segue to get back into a scene. Um, go with your heart. So the character of Susie is so distraught that Harry Drake is able to get them fired, even from her working in a, what appears to be a strip club or a burlesque room. Yeah. Spoiler alert, that comes back around in season four, the burlesque theater. And Susie's freaking out so badly from that, that she goes to see Lenny Bruce while he's backstage before he goes on at a place called the Gaiety Theater, I see in Jamie's notes, and says, please, you got to come perform at the Gaslight. And his reaction to that is, are you crazy? I don't do you basket know? houses anymore. I don't do Get out of here. Basket houses. So yeah. for those who hear that term and maybe are unfamiliar, I wonder if it would even come up on a Google search. And and True. I wasn't I wasn't that familiar with it. They would pass the hat. You know, there are a lot of acts in San Francisco where I started. Harry Anderson comes to mind, who started out as street performers. Yeah. And did quite well if they were 
brilliant at it when passing the hat. But I guess that's what they meant by a basket house. Right. That's it. They passed a basket around for funds to pay the comedians. Yeah. Yeah. Also how the Catholic Church started. Yes. <laughs> and continues to and continues. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not taking a shot because I'm a Jew. I got plenty of things. I have you know. plenty of jokes about the uh I'm still laughing and I'm a half-assed Catholic. So Yeah. Well, I'm a California Reformed Jew, which is basically <laughs> Yeah. I was at an Easter dinner of a family of, of a girl I was dating who became my first and now ex-wife. And her 11-year-old niece at the Easter dinner found out that I was, you know, there was a Jew at the table and asked me with no, you know, intention or or agenda, just said, do you think that the Jews killed Christ? Because apparently she had been taught that mm -hmm. as an 11-year-old Catholic. And I squirmed a little and said, um, no, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it's probable that we sold the Romans the lumber at retail? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. And everyone just laughed, and I thought, oh, I guess that, that's going to be in the act now. In oh, the, in yeah, that's good. That's good. Where it has existed. I was working at a recording studio. I tell this joke every Easter because it made it still makes me laugh to this day, and this happened about 12 years ago. I walked into a recording studio, and we always have on the counter some bagels or something to eat because if your stomach growls while you're recording, you need to eat a little something and go back yeah. in the booth, you know? So on the table where these treats are usually uh, presented, there was a huge basket of Easter candy. <laughs> And there was a note stuck into it and said, dear friends, please enjoy these delicious Easter candies. So sorry about your Lord, the Jews. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Every Easter, I do send texts to certain Catholic friends <laughs> saying, happy Easter. Sorry, we killed your dude. <laughs> um, there's more Jew jokes for you, folks. There so, you go. <laughs> yeah. So Susie goes to see Lenny Bruce and um, on bended knee, you know, and yeah. I don't think it's obvious whether he's going to actually go through with it and, until she so mentions either. it's for Midge. And then you start to think, yeah, he'd do anything for her. You do almost nothing for Susie, but he would right. seemingly do anything. And sure enough, at a most powerful, wonderful, extraordinary final scene of the final episode of season one, he goes on stage at the gaslight. He introduces a young talent. He's asked her to change her name, but she doesn't tell him what it's going to be because he doesn't like her first fake name of Amanda Gleason. So he just says, well, I'll let you do it. And she goes on stage. And um, it's kind of amazing because once again, she's performing this sort of stream of consciousness material wise, yeah. which is a great culmination of season one. She starts out that way. Of course, she's drunk and stumbles onto the stage at the gaslight in, in the first episode and slowly decides this is a career she wants and her and Susie are going to take on the world. She even tries doing jokes on stage by buying a fistful of horrible jokes from Wally Shawn's character. Right. Uh <laughs> right. And I love in that episode where she's, the jokes are so bad, but she's also correcting the spelling in some of them as well as the, right. <laughs> as well as the content. <laughs> And uh, here she is full circle again, doing complete stream of consciousness. It got her in trouble, of course, with Harry Drake talking about the great Sophie Lennon. But once again, she's talking about how Penny Pan came to B. Altman and tried to justify demanding that she stop seeing her husband again. 
<laughs> I found out that they had sex and she's and Penny Pan is very upset. So she's talking about this interaction. and she doesn't know Joel is at the back of the room and he's been drinking and he continues to pull from a flask. And I remember watching it the first time thinking he's going to go up on stage. He's going to yell out. He's going to stop this. Yeah and, the, yeah, and and it would have made sense, and it would have been a nice conflict and an interesting scene, and who knows, come to fisticuffs with somebody, maybe Lenny Bruce, who knows? But instead, Amy and Dan do the most brilliant thing, and they make a couple of members of the audience, which would have made sense, you know, these sort of machismo. They almost look like construction workers. Yeah, yeah. In their total union, hecklers. Yeah, union yeah. outfits, real men. Who would be mm -hmm. so offended by the little lady on stage and they heckle her and eventually walk out and so they pull the focus of what joel is thinking which is mm -hmm. she needs to stop and that moment when he goes outside to basically beat one of them up when he says the words she's good and then oh. he stands up and walks away and almost says it to himself the last time yeah and yeah. his voice cracks because he's tearing up Oh, man. I know. Goosebumps again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I remember saying to Mike Zegan after I saw it the first time, mm. just how extraordinary the emotion in that scene. Yeah. And then we go back inside and she has her moment. That's my set. Thank you and good night. I'm Mrs. Maisel. And, and, you know, in that, in what became her signature outfit, Jamie made a great note when it's decided that she's going to perform at the gaslight and that Lenny's going to open up or introduce her. We don't know all the machinations yet. We just know she's in her mother's closet looking for an outfit. Yeah. And she pulls out this black dress and her mother's very upset with her at the time and doesn't know what she's doing. And she's at a period, of course, where she's not telling her parents what she does. The stand-up comedy nonsense. <laughs> but then as Rose is walking away, she turns back and says, that dress is going to need some pearls. And it's such a part of, oh. as Jamie wrote, a part of uh, yeah. of the Mrs. Maisel onstage uniform or outfit. Yeah, you know? yeah really kind mm. of amazing how they made a point of of showing us um, how the that sausage was made. And then there's a, a dedication I noticed at the end when the screen goes black after she says, my name is Mrs. Maisel, thank you and good night. She looks right into camera yeah. with a big smile. And that's how he concludes season one. And then it goes black screen right. and then it goes to the dedication to Amy's father, to Don right. Sherman, the first of these sit down comics. And I remember Jamie asking me, what, is, what does that mean? And I assumed it was because he was kind of a semi-regular on Playboy After Dark. And he was one of those comedians that I eventually emulated which they knew they could do much better on the couch as opposed to doing their stand-up act. Uh -huh. So they finagled and, and found a way to get to the couch. In my case, as a quote-unquote actor. And then I just did my act, but from the couch in the guise of conversation. But I'd seen Steve Martin, Albert Brooks, Don Rickles, you mm -hmm. know, some heroes. But Don Sherman was, uh, as declared by Amy in the final credits, the first of the sit-down comics. And when I that have is so her, cool. On her, uh, yeah, that I didn't know that you, you had known his work. That is so cool. Yeah, well, I didn't until she was telling me, and we were talking for initially about my being on the show, and she, mm -hmm. that's when she shared, you know, my dad was a comic because I, you know, comedians are very snobby about non comedians portraying comedians in terms of the rhythm of a comedian on stage is not something that can be faked. And right. it was a great tribute to Rachel Brosnahan when every comedian I talked to just said, has she done stand-up? And, and I people, know, it's staggering that she's yeah. never done stand-up. Oh, my God, she's such a natural. 
not only never done stand-up, the first to admit is not funny <laughs> in life. She, she gets the joke. She's a great yeah. audience. Yeah. She doesn't think in terms, you know, comedians can't help themselves. It's in their right, wiring. Right. They, everything <laughs> is material. So they, they're looking for the zinger and the one, you know, the comment. Yeah. Yeah. And she's never really ever looking for an opening for a zinger. So, yeah. So when she was portraying a comedian and, you know, I was concerned initially when talking to Amy and Dan about doing the show, uh, I told them when I watched the pilot in preparation for the conversation of my possibly doing it. So this girl you found, she's a comedian that I don't know because she's, you know, I fell for it as well. And that's when Amy shared that her dad was a comedian. She grew up in a home. And it's so clear to me as someone who's written my own act for 40 years that, you know, writing a voice of a comedian is one of the hardest things. And comedians ourselves, it takes us forever to even find our voice. Mm -hmm. And so as Amy described it, it was growing up in that home and witnessing not only her father, but her father's friends, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any input like that growing up um not really or family or no my father was i think a frustrated performer he was talented but uh, never i think he may have had a fantasy about going to show business he had an incredible ear he could just play any kind of an instrument with by ear he did wow. music yeah, he could do dialects brilliantly, could really tell a story with an accurate dialect. We grew up in, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, a very ethnic neighborhood. We heard everything. Mm. And um, this is going to be bizarre, but uh, he was, uh, he was, he was irresponsible. He was too young when uh, I was born. He drank too much and uh, he literally ran off and joined the circus and became a clown in the Shrine Circus. <laughs> well, there's a story you don't hear every day. I'm going to just shift my screen a little bit. I don't know if you can see, but I have his clown shoes are uh, hanging on the wall behind your me. other shoulder. Yeah. Other shoulder. There, yeah. there you go. Yeah. It was just his clown shoes. And oh, that's my. his portrait up above. Before he got involved with the circus, he would ha have that placard, that portrait of him in a duffel bag. And he, he was a sad-faced uh, hobo clown. Like Emmett Kelly was his hero. Emmett sure. Kelly was his hero. And um, he, he would do balloon animals, and he had an invisible dog on a leash. And uh, mm -hmm. he would stand and do these balloon animals, and he would do birthday parties and stuff. And then he finally got involved with the Shriners and the Shrine Circus. That's yeah. wild. So, that's absolutely uh, wild. That's my show business connection. <laughs> well, but listen... <laughs> He's not cleaning up after the elephant, as the story no. goes. So. And the thing, I never learned to read music either because I it was a bad divorce and I was going to a different school every year. So I never really got a very consistent education. But uh, what was the point I was trying to make about that? Uh, oh, that I never learned to read music. Right. And I ended up doing some of the biggest Broadway musicals in history. And I don't read music. But if you play something for me one time, I've got it. Just so I like got Dad. that from him. Yeah. Got that from him, clearly. Yeah, well, I um, I had the same schooling. That is to say, I went to the same elementary school, the same junior high, or as the kids like to call it now, middle school, oh. and the same high school all throughout my school. Wow. But I'll tell you, I too had a horrible education because I was just bored. <laughs> yeah, if the teachers were bored, man, oh man, was I just checking out Ooh, instantly. Yeah. And yeah. if I got a teacher that was really dialed in, then I, I did care. Well, listen. Cynthia, this has been incredible. I greatly appreciate your time and, and the time pleasure. you took 
to rewatch the episode so we could talk about it and your insights. Is there anything else that you'd like to add just in terms of either table reads or wardrobe or experiences throughout the first season? Anything at all that you'd like to recall? No pressure. Oh, I wish I wish every actor could get to experience what we've gotten to experience on this show. The table reads are treated like a party. I mean, it, it, with art and food and beautiful scripts to read. And it's just, it's an incredible experience for us all to come together around that huge table and play with each other. It's just the most delicious thing. And not every organization treats a table read like that. And it's very, very special. I'll never, ever forget it. Wardrobe. Oh my God. Donna Zakowska is my goddess. I yeah. bow down before her. I yeah. worship her, the ground she walks on. Her attention to detail and fit and working with the character and with the actor, it's just unprecedented. Unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. And the scripts, uh, the cast, the, the direction, the crew, the makeup and hair, every single thing. I mean, makeup and hair totally came up with my look. I had very little input at the first they just came up with that. And it was so perfect. Wow. Who wouldn't even have anything to say about it? Not me. Yeah. It was yeah. perfect. <laughs> I just, every department, just extraordinary. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting verklempt because it's just meant everything. And, uh, and, and my position in the world has changed because of this show. Truly. It's, yeah. I'll be eternally grateful. Well, well said. And thank you for sharing all of that, honestly, because mm -hmm. the experience of doing this show is one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast. So people can- I'm so glad you are. Not just have sort of behind the scenes stuff, but really the sort of insights of the making of the damn thing. So yeah. thank you. Thank you very you bet. much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that, ladies and Jews, is Cynthia Darlow, <laughs> aka Mrs. Moskowitz. Please come back and talk to us again as I break down future seasons. I will continue to bother you until you return. Excellent. It would be my joy and pleasure. Well, then we now have that on recording as well. <laughs> All right. Take care and be well, please. You too. Oh, yes. You know what I'm going to say. You know what you know, you know I'm going to say. How about that? Oh, just love her. Just love her. Don't you? Write to us at my Mrs. at gmail.com and let me know how much you love Cynthia Darla. Oh, yeah. Well, there you have it. The celebration, the discussions of nuance and detail and ritual and the doings of. Oh, speaking of writing to us, yes, it's that time. We're going to open up the mailbag. Here we go. We're on our way. There it is, the mailbag. Today's mail comes from Shelby. Shelby writes, Mr. Pollock, I love KPCS, one of my first pods I really followed, actually. I think I explained in one of the episodes of KPCS's Kevin Pollock's chat show. Shelby goes on, and I was so excited to see your Mrs. Maisel pod. You were beyond amazing on the show, and now to hear you talk about it with others who created it. I'm not sure how we fans got so lucky. Thank you. No, no, Shelby. Thank you. She goes on. I'm listening to Luke Kirby. Will that be the first episode of this podcast? And something that um, was said brought up a question. When did you start recording the podcast? It looks like the first ep was just published a few weeks ago. But in the first episode, you mentioned, quote, the last two episodes of season four just dropped a couple days ago, end quote. If you started the pod last year... Did you know how the fifth season would go and end when having these conversations? Did that knowledge or lack thereof influence how you shape the episodes? I am excited to follow along and see how the pod plays out. 
Project. Sorry for the ramblings. I know what you'd be saying if this were KPCS, but I appreciate your time. Congrats on such an amazing show. Thank you and good night. Sincerely, Shelby of Belmont, Massachusetts. Yes, well, Shelby and others who have written in on this topic, I thought it was time to address the facts, which are while we were shooting season five, Yes, around the time when season four was dropping. While we were shooting season five, I had an epiphany. Hey, I'm with these folks and family for the last time in this being our last season, season five. Why not use the time of shooting between January and November of 2022? Why not use that time when I know everybody's scheduled to uh, do a podcast? So I started recording and recording and recording. So yes, many of these pre-recorded. Now, I will then freshly record what's called the wraparounds, now being an example of that as part of the mailbag, and also some, uh, you know, emails answered by castmates. And there'll be some upcoming drop-in informations, like I think last two weeks, it was announced that we're going to be doing uh, my Mrs. Maisel pod live on stage, which was very exciting until the uh, SAG after strike occurred. And now it's feeling not great to be doing these live shows. So we are postponing them. The July shows, if you hadn't heard yet, have been postponed. So far, the idea is to move them to sometime in September, but we'll keep you posted. My apologies to everyone who jumped on the chance to get tickets. I thank you so very, very much for your support and following of this podcast and the opportunity to perform it live in front of you. And I look forward to many of those opportunities. To Shelby's question, yes, many of these episodes were pre-recorded last year while I had everyone present. I think you would appreciate and understand that. Anywho, keep those emails and questions coming simply by writing to my at gmail.com. And thank you, Shelby, for writing into my at gmail.com. I personally read all the emails. Can you imagine? Well, I'll help you have a difficult time imagining because there are too many already. Uh, we're, what, six weeks into this process. Oof. Yeah, now seven, seventh, now eighth. This is the eighth episode. Oh, my. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and I'm getting through them, I promise. Reading them is one thing, replying is another, and then gathering them for this mailbag process. Mm, please bear with me. So thank you for uh, continuing to support the show and telling everyone you meet to subscribe and rate and review and all those things. It's making a difference and it's much appreciated. There's more work to be done, so help if you can. Uh, I want to thank, of course, the fine folks who work on the program. In our closing credits here, research producer, writer, Jamie Fox, and the wonderful recording engineer, post-production genius, Ken Plume, the exceptionally fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code! Sounds like something, doesn't it? And all of you, how do you listen to the podcast? Please let me know at mymrsbangsalpod at gmail.com. I love to follow that part as well so I can speak to you specifically. And uh, I'm no good at the closing credits here. Do you sense that as well? Just uh, bless you. Season one, there it is. Starting next week with season two, episode one. So remember to rewatch. Season 2 of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Episode 1. This is your host, Kevin Pollock, thanking you. I'll see you in my dreams. Until then, be kind to each other.
Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.